Welcome to Network Automation Hangout, weekly audio discussion about network automation with the community, where everyone can participate, share their opinion, or ask a question. This episode is being recorded live on May 6, 2028, 2021 on DeutschHouse.tv. Today on the panel, we have Carl Montanari at Carl Montanari on Twitter and myself, Dmitry Figel at TM Figel on Twitter. Hey, Carl, how are you doing today? Good. Did you say it was 2028? The year was 2028. Are we time traveling now? Maybe, maybe. I love it. That was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> All good. Yeah, I'm doing good, man. Chilling. Been writing a lot of Go so I, lately. So I guess we'll probably have a little bit of that to talk about. Uh, otherwise, nothing too exciting. Yeah, just just tell us more about what you have been doing. I've seen some progress of yours, and it looks quite impressive. So. I think it would be useful for our, our audience too. Yeah, it's a shame Roman's not here because he's part of the instigation for this. But uh, I don't know, maybe seven or eight months back, I, I I guess I back up a little bit. Like two or three years ago, I wrote like the first little like hello world of Go and it blew my mind and I couldn't understand it and it was terrible. And then maybe more like eight or nine months, maybe a little bit longer uh, ago, I started writing Scrapply and Go just as a learning experience, I guess, kind of like all Scrapply things. And I got it working, but I published it anything because it was pretty packy and terrible. And, you know, it was just draft playing around. But the last week or so, I've been jumping into actually trying to do it kind of for reals <laughs> and rewriting Scrapply and Go. And so it's working. You know, it'll go through a couple iterations because I'm still learning things that, you know, I mean, Go is obviously way different than Python in a lot of respects. So I'm, I'm kind of running into to the pointy edges and, and trying to figure out stuff as I go along, as I go along. <laughs> but yeah, so right now I've got uh, basically Scrapply kind of core working in Go, the same system transport, and then also Crypto SSH, which is kind of sort of like a Paramico thing built as part of Go standard library. And uh, I'm just working on adding netconf support right now, which is, it's mostly working. I just got to like do like chunk size validation for netconf 1.1 and sort out my result kind of object thing. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty much working. I haven't really written tests yet, which, you know, is one of my favorite things <laughs> or favorite things to harp on. So I got to figure that out at some point, but yeah, so I've just been kind of plugging away and quite liking it so far. That sounds interesting. And I can tell you right now, if a year from now I will start writing Go and I will not want to look back on Python, I will blame you for everything you have done to me. You gotta blame Roman too. He's he's, and, he's a part and of this Roman. <laughs> I can always find something or someone to blame, so that's no problem. But I have this fear that it might actually happen. So just to clarify, to set some context, so Scrapply for Python, right, which is a library to do SSH or telnet connection to network devices has been around for a while and you started building version of that in Go. Let's just list like features that are currently working and the next thing that you want to focus on so people are aware where this yeah. project is. Yeah, so it's not public right now still because it's a hot mess. So it'll still be a couple weeks probably before there's like a alpha or beta or whatever <laughs> release. But right now the core, kind of like one of the harder parts or more complicated parts of Scrapply core is all the authentication or like privilege level handling and automatically, you know, acquiring privileges, you know, so if you log into a device and you're at 
exec prompt and you need to get into you know a config session or whatever scrapply will just handle all of that for you it basically builds a graph and it'll kind of traverse privilege levels to wherever it needs to go so that's probably the most complicated bits because the rest is once you have some kind of channel handling logic like send an input and know when it's done like once you have that it's not really that complicated so the privilege bits are the the scary parts and that's working in go obviously the basic channel kind of reading and, and sending stuff is working netconf get config is working so yeah i have like send send commands and commands from file send config send configs from file and then get config and then all the acquire priv stuff and it's kind of like a for better or worse i guess it's it's sort of close to a one-to-one -one translation of scrappy python into go because like i figured like the public api should more or less anyway because there's only so many things you can do to a, a router or a switch like send a command that's that's one of them um so that exists kind of in a one-to-one -one translation but yeah so i think that's that's kind of it i think like the big thing is adding all of the netconf method uh, you know for it and with filters and uh, edit and lock stuff like that what are the biggest challenges you have faced so far importing your scrappy python into go probably my lack of familiarity with go just generally speaking so i actually think you know when i started looking at did like the first little hello world and I was looking at like a Terraform provider, somebody else at the company I was working for at the time was writing three or four or five or whenever years ago. I'd never really done any kind of typed stuff. So it was all just Python, you know, duck typing and like off you go and you don't have to think that much about it. I think being pretty aggressive with MyPy and, and using MyPy strict checking on, on everything I write for the last year or two maybe has really helped kind of ease some of that but there's still just like go things that you're like you know don't really exist in python like you've got to dereference the pointer and do weird stuff like that i'd be lying if i said i totally understood it all at this point but i'm at least able to kind of to get through it error handling is also really 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 explicit whereas python you could kind of just like roll with stuff <laughs> and not be as not be as explicit about it so yeah i think it's mostly just been language problems there hasn't really been any difficulty in terms of actual netcom stuff it's just sending bytes and reading bytes so there's nothing too crazy with that so carl you also mentioned to me something about unmarshalling and xml would you like to share share more on this topic <laughs> no <laughs> yeah i don't know that i have smart words to say about it because like i just don't know enough to to speak intelligently at this point but the tldr is in python scrapply the payloads that we actually send to the device we use lxml and we we build the payloads and we we basically build a base payload and then we insert into the element tree like the git config stanza or the git whatever regular git stanza and it's all kind of dynamic and magic and lxml does a lot of the hard work for you you just need to know where in the element tree you want to insert things or or pop things out of or whatever go is not at least so far and you know like this is like packing at it so Probably I'm not, not the, the expert on this, but at least so far, want to marshal or unmarshal, and I'm not entirely sure I'm using those words right, but uh, when you want to marshal into an XML object, or maybe it's out of, I don't know, whatever, you have to have a struct that defines basically what that object looks like, which means it's much less dynamic. You can't just be like, oh, here's, here's a struct, and then like, I'm just going to insert randomly into it because I can in Python, so why can't I in Go? And like, you kind of can, you because you can insert an inner payload, which is just like string and so you could just dump that into a, the xml object somewhere and it doesn't care about the typing of that thing because it's just a string but that was kind of not how it works in scrapply and obviously i was just kind of like using scrapply as the 
blueprint or, or whatever you want to say. Um, so I think I've got to like a reasonable place where I've, I've been building the elements and then embedding those elements into the other elements. So like there'll be the git config element. And then inside of that, it has to have a, a source tag running or candidate or whatever. And then there's a filter and there's a de with defaults tag. And so basically I've built all of those structs. So then I basically kind of squish the source and the with defaults and all that into the Get configs struct. I like basically embed them, and then if they're if they're empty or nil, you just ignore them and they they don't exist there. Uh, and then I put that whole finalized kind of Git config thing into the base payload, which contains like the outermost RPC tags and like the XML namespace and all that kind of junk and like message ID and all that kind of normal stuff for for netconf. So yeah, so I think I've gotten to a reasonably happy place with it, but it was definitely less easy. <laughs> it was definitely harder than Python. To be honest, the part about strict unmarshalling or marshalling, I always confuse the direction for those words in Go kind of scares me. Like just the thought of, oh, here I have a JSON and I have to define the whole structure of the JSON or XML or whatever is a struct, including all nesting, kind of scares me. But again, I am super novice in, in Go, so it's hard for me to judge, but... Do I understand correctly that it would look similar like typed dict in Python? Like you also, if you want to have strict typing on your dictionary, that's what you do. You would add types for every single field and then have like nested dictionaries and nested dict uh, type dicts for those. Yeah, or like going bananas with Pydantic and just like having, you know, a Pydantic model for like the entire you know, every possibility in the dict, that's kind of kind of like what it's like. It feels more like the Pydantic thing. So I was doing some some stuff where I have a YAML file and run it through Pydantic. It's kind of like composed of smaller chunks of Pydantic. And <laughs> sorry, this is hard. I, I got to like wave my hands around to explain. But there, there's like a base model. And then that base model has elements in it. Like key one is a type of a different Pydantic model. Key two is a different type of Pydantic model. And so it's all kind of lumped together like that. So it feels very similar to to that to me, if that makes any kind of sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. And it still scares me. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely different <laughs> after Python where you're like, ah, whatever, I could do magic. <laughs> yeah, it just sometimes feels nice to have this power of zero accountability for your data where you just, oh, here's a data variable. And I would just go deep into it without doing any kind of schema declaration whatsoever. And then I will just insert an element there and, and go, it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's cool though. Cause it's like really explicit. So that's, that part's nice. I guess it's a trade-off of course. The other thing that I've ran into recently or yesterday was that I can't do negative look aheads or negative assertions in regex and go. And that's been, that breaks my brain. Cause I've relied on that fairly heavily in, in scrappy things. So that's been fun. So of course our, Savior Stack Overflow <laughs> told me this, but I, I think it's because if if you had a negative look ahead, you couldn't guarantee like an O N one or whatever you know big O notation like speed kind of thing from the the search, and so they just like bend that. It's like it just the negative look ahead just doesn't exist in Go regex, which is painful. <laughs> uh, maybe thank God because I don't know. I don't really <laughs> like negative look aheads. Uh, they are yeah, but weird. they're so useful. Oh. <laughs> they're so useful, yeah. It's just though. just an excuse to write a lame regular expression, isn't it? That's the only kind I write, man. <laughs> so you gotta you gotta deal with it. All right, Beprim, you are with us. Oh, thanks, guys. So my question was, um, 
first of all, thank you for uh, doing all this. And the second day was um, now, whenever I try to write an XML filter, basically I rely on the Yang Suite uh, the Docker container to generate the XML filter for me. Is there any other better way of doing that? So just to clarify a question, you are talking about NatConf, NatConf payload, correct? correct? correct and yeah. are you using Subtree or you're using XPath filtering for that? Just the filtering on the NCC client, NC client, sorry. Wherever you specify the filter and then you specify the payload for that filter. So there are two ways of doing filtering in NetConf. And it doesn't matter if you're using NC client, if you're using Scrapple NetConf, or maybe you're just building XML payload by yourself. So one of them is called Subtree, or another one is called XPath. Well, depending on the library, you will specify it in the, in the arguments. With Subtree, you add the tags kind of like almost like an XML payload. With XPath, you have a pass to the element which acts as a selector. So they're kind of different. I would assume that you're using subtree. I think one of the ways that really helped me is first, just generally understanding Yang and like what container, what lit list and all, what all of those things are. And you could use any kind of tooling you want for that. So like PyYang, Yang Suite, ANX. ANX actually is a really nice tool. It's advanced NetCon Explorer, if you look on GitHub for that. Another thing in PyYang, for example, there is a format, and I don't remember exactly how it's called. I think it's called the in or something like that. So what that allows you to do is it will build for you a skeleton XML for a given Yang subtree. So you almost can copy paste that as a filter. So that is quite an option. Now, once you become much more familiar with just Yang itself, at some point you will be able to just look at PyYang output, or maybe just even looking into Yang file directly and just adding those subtree filters by yourself, like almost manually without using any kind of tooling. It just takes practice. Do you have any follow-up question on that, or maybe any some clarification on on this? I uh, have some follow-up work to do myself and then probably I might come back for some follow-up questions. But I, I guess it's, it's, it comes back to me trying uh, all those that you mentioned. I did make a note of them. Yeah, I'll, I'll go and check them out. But thank you so much. Sure. And you scrappy netconf. Sorry. Sorry to anybody that worked on NC Client. Ba basically, it's on my to-do list. Uh, I've got to write a project for work and uh, the library that I've already chosen is scrappy netconf. Because it, it the the solution needs to have async support, so business logic. Yeah, async I/O is pretty sweet. Definitely worth it for that, if nothing else. I think. <laughs> Obviously, I'm biased though, so I don't know if that counts. Well, I guess I'm biased too, so I can recommend Scrubly as well. I mean, honestly, folks, if you haven't tried Scrubly before, I strongly recommend you do that. I'm using it for almost everything. In any network automation related project, I have something of Scrapply. It's usually at least Scrapply based, which just allows you to do SSH telnet connection. But in many projects, I also do use Scrapply CFG and Scrapply NetConf. And honestly, it's just so nice to have a similar experience with all of them and being able to do async everywhere. It just feels great. So if you haven't tried it, I strongly recommend you do that. And once you do, you will probably never go back to any other libraries that were doing similar stuff. Carl, let's continue discussing weird stuff when you migrated to Go. 
Oh, I don't know if I have any other weird things at this point. Well, not weird, just different. Yeah, I'm just trying to think kind of where I'm at. So yeah, like the the current thing I need to do is I need to handle the netconf 1.1 chunk response processing that Scrapply does. So I got to figure that out. Nothing weird or challenging particularly. I just haven't gotten to it yet. So, <laughs> so that's that's pretty much where I'm at. So I know we already discussed the topic Go versus Python on the very first episode. I still want to ask you this question again, since you already have some more experience with Go. In general, what is your feeling right now about it as a language for network automation? Would you recommend people start starting with it, doing anything with it? Um, no, probably not. I mean, I, I mean, there's clearly people out there that are think you know that would probably disagree. But just for like the sheer quantity of Python packages that exist to help do things, Python just seems to be a no-brainer, and it's just easier. Like, I mean, maybe I don't know, maybe that's different for different people. I'm sure, but the flexibility of Python is is pretty nice. And NetBox exists, and NetMiko, and Scrapply, and Ansible's Python, and Nornir, and Napalm, and like there's a b- billion other things, obviously. So yeah, I mean, I think Python seems like the obvious place to start, and I probably wouldn't bother with Go unless you had, you know, a use case that differences in the language would be useful for you. For example, you're running a billion lambdas, and you need to use, you know, as little resources as possible. And so you, if you could do stuff faster, you're you're paying for less time. And so okay, maybe Go makes sense for that. Or you know, maybe if you're super like into gRPC land and protobuf magic that I don't really know much about, um, but I guess if you're in, into that kind of side of the world then it maybe makes more sense than Python. But I think if you, um, yeah, Veprim said it's more forgiving. Python definitely more forgiving, I think. And yeah, I think if, you, if you're dealing with like kind of a normal place where there is legacy stuff and you don't have just, not everything is gRPC or, or whatever, then, and you still have like Telnet on a 2960, you know, in a closet somewhere, Python just seems like the easier button for that. I'm sure that's me being biased as well, but it, it just seems like a better place to start. Yeah, I think I would agree. So it's just ecosystem of Python is just so nice uh, in terms of network automation. So at this point, I really don't see any reason why would I want to switch to Golang, even if it's faster. But so by speaking of speed, I know we didn't do any kind of measurements, but like just tell us about your perception of what you have seen since you wrote Scrapply Go and Scrapply for Python. Uh, it's definitely faster. Uh, I don't have any good quantifiable kind of info on that, but I will definitely get something at some point or, or you and I can you know figure that out with the big lab, but it's definitely faster. But we are not probably yeah, talking about like five times faster, right? No, no, definitely not. I think like async SSH with Scrapply will probably be pretty quick and fairly comparable uh, because one of the benefits of getting away from kind of default system transport in Scrapply is that you don't have to spawn a bunch of threads. So kind of one of Scrapply's core things that make it good, I think, is that the timeouts are really clear and obvious. You know, you have the timeout ops and that if it's 30 seconds and it's 30.1 seconds, your thing times out. And the way that that works is there's a thread and that thread basically handles the timeout. But in async IO, we don't have that problem. We don't have to spun a thread for that. It's just natively baked into async IO. So async SSH is probably faster than system transport anyway. But then it also gets the benefit of it doesn't have to spawn a billion threads for all of the timeouts that happen in Scrapply. With Go, we don't have that at all, even for like the system transport. Like the system transport still exists in the in Scrapply Go, but we just were able to just use Go routines to do the timeout, very similar to how um, it's done with async SSH and async IO in Scrapply Python land. 
So I think if nothing else, that benefit is going to be pretty obvious just in the fact that we're not spawning a gajillion threads every time we do anything. And then probably just crunch and regex on like a big output and, and stuff like that. I, I can't imagine it wouldn't be faster in Go, but I mean, I don't really have any kind of numbers to back that up or anything, but it just, it definitely seems faster though. Like I can, it's noticeably faster testing a couple devices at home running, you know, five or six or 10 commands or whatever compared to Python. It's, you know, at least 20% faster. Yeah. Well, I don't know if 20% would make me want to move to Go for everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, I don't think it's going to be fast enough to be like ditch Python for at least that's my kind of take so far. Subject to, to changing my mind at, at a moment's notice, of course. Yeah, I don't think it's that big of a difference, let's say, compared to Ansible in Python, right? <laughs> Five times or sometimes up to 10 times. Yeah, I think like, you know, if you start looking at it at really big scale or in a thing where it's really the, the cost is, is very obviously tied to like execution time like Lambda's, then it's maybe interesting. But I think realistically, you're still waiting on IO. That's the biggest single slowdown, and whether it's Python, Perl, or, or Go, or whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's still IO is still the biggest single blocking point at this point. Yeah, I would agree. So it feels like at least that the biggest thing that takes resources is just waiting on a response. Well, there there is piece of cryptography, right? SSH is kind of a resource hawk for that piece. And then waiting on the whatever is sent to be processed by device and the result to be received. Well, crypto is kind of related to language a little bit. Depends on crypto library. But the part where you are waiting on device to do something is not really. Right? So I guess we'll see. I definitely have in mind, and we already discussed this privately, that I want to, once your version is built, to have it run on 500 devices that I have in the lab and actually get some numbers on that. I think that would be super interesting for everyone because we have done some scraply testing with different transport, NetMiko, Ansible. There was some Go version, but I needed some handholding for that. That is not really useful for measurement results or something like that. So once the version is built, we'll probably go ahead and run tests again on 500 devices to understand what kind of performance increase you will get from doing that. The speed topic is still like, if it takes me five times as long to write it, is the speed benefit worth it? We were just talking actual hard numbers, but like the development time counts too. So I'm definitely faster at Python. <laughs> I'm sure there's other people that are definitely faster at Go, but for me, I can get more done with Python much faster. But but yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to testing it at scale. Carl, you mentioned something and I think I want to talk more about it. So you mentioned Lambda in at one point. So let's talk a little bit more about cloud because it's very likely that not everyone understands what Lambda is, what serverless is, and honestly, what role cloud plays in the whole network automation world. So let's start with that. So what do you think about cloud in terms of network automation? Oh Lord, open-ended. I live in the Pacific Northwest. We have clouds all the time. I don't know. Um, I guess it really just depends on the organization and, and whatever. I mean, I think you can involve cloud or you cannot entirely depending on you know what your org looks like and where things are, are running and if you have a private cloud or your own data center then maybe you don't build stuff in aws and that's okay too all that said 
building stuff in AWS or Google or whatever is quite nice. Lambdas are really nice to just not have to worry about having a, a place to run things. That's that's pretty cool. I quite like Fargate. Let, let's stop throwing just terms around and let's give <laughs> some, a little, some context on what's, what's going on. So I actually started my cloud journey very recently, maybe like a month or one and a half months ago, and mainly because I have a project at work, which I think is a good fit for cloud. I honestly think that it's an interesting area to explore if you are the one building any kind of network automation application, especially if it spans across across different regions. For example, for my project, we have data centers in multiple locations, which actually don't have direct connectivity between each other. And we do need some automation for those. And I was thinking, what would be the best way to organize this? Because you can obviously deploy some stuff on-prem, but then I'll have to duplicate my effort on deploying that and deploying any kind of new version and maintaining that in every data center. And the obvious solution for that was cloud. So you have some kind of controller sitting in the cloud, then you build, probably you build some kind of VPNs toward your data centers and majority of cloud providers allow you to do that. So you build what they call VPC, which is kind of like this networking segmentation in the cloud. And then you connect that VPC via VPN to your on-prem, this just IPsec or something like that. And then you have connectivity to your infrastructure there. So this is a direction I started to explore because I wanted to have a central point of control for the automation I'm building. I don't want to deploy a new version of application to the tons of different places. That is kind of weird. And then second piece, I also see that a lot of these network automation projects are really led by one or just a couple of people, not really by the, you know, big software teams. In that particular instance, you really don't want to maintain anything yourself because you already have a lot of things on your plate. So if you can have some kind of managed services, I know you don't manage your compute, you don't manage your database, you don't manage all that, and you just pay some amount of money for that. That is especially nice from my perspective in this environment where majority of these projects are led by very small group of people. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, I guess it just all depends on, on everything. I mean, there's clearly value in cloud and hosting things there. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just so subjective that I don't have strong thoughts on on any one thing in particular the one thing i do like about lambda or fargate or whatever is is i kind of don't super love the idea of having kind of one automation box that does everything you know you run ansible or norni or whatever on some server um, i really don't love that pattern and so i like to be able to just spin up workers per thing and and that's obviously way easier but like you don't necessarily need that. I don't have super strong opinions, I guess, on kind of any of it, really. Pepe? <laughs> yeah, I was hearing uh, your your stuff, and um, it's a very interesting topic because every time I get involved in some uh, network automation project, uh, the, usually the providers are or the customers are very nervous about deploying stuff on cloud, which then can control something on the network side. And it actually goes as far as they don't want something like, uh, let's say, a controller which users interact to actually have direct access on the network management side. So it becomes very difficult. So the way some, at least this is my way of trying to handle this sort of situation is to create 
to decouple the components where you talk to the network devices with a uh, with a component that does the business logic, right? At least um, right now, I tend to use something like uh, a messaging bus to transmit the data, and then the workers which are going to talk to the devices to just receive the data on a particular queue using, uh, let's say, a RabbitMQ, and do whatever they need to do, and then submit uh, the output to a database so that the the part, let's say, the OSS part doesn't really have direct access to the network management. At least this is just a way I try to do, at least until Carl develops a NetConf server and a NetConf client, which they can talk to each other, like an orchestration. <laughs> no no servers. <laughs> Stick with, with Rabbit. I like Rabbit too. <laughs> Thank you for your input, Verprim. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I have looked at the using queues for some pieces of my project too, which are probably in, in that particular instance, not the best fit, uh, but I, I guess I'll evaluate more on that later. I wanted to discuss a little bit more on what kind of compute options you get if you choose cloud. And Carl, you mentioned Fargate, you mentioned Lambda. Do you mind telling the audience what are really the range of your options if you're going into the cloud direction in terms of compute? And we don't have to go super deep just so people sure. have an understanding. Let's say, you know, people are used to deploying a VM, installing, I know, Python, and then somehow packaging your application and running it there. Uh, maybe just YSCP or something. So what are your options if you choose to deploy network automation application or really any application on the cloud? Sure. Um, I guess you got three or something buckets where you got VMs, you know, EC2 instance, whatever, kind of traditional, normal virtual machine. And then you can go into Lambda or serverless where it's you have basically a runtime. So like it's kind of container-like, but not really. It's like Firecracker in AWS's case. But so you have a runtime for Python 3.8 and basically you get carved out a little bit of compute and you feed it some code and it just runs the code and you don't have to worry about the environment that that code's running in or anything like there's no 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 machine to manage or workspace to manage then you've got kind of more traditional container type stuff it's like ecs and aws land where you can say well here's my container image and i want you know five of these containers and off you go that's probably like my favorite place to deploy things just because i think it's generally fairly easy and you still have it's a good trade-off of like total amount of control that you have versus not having to manage stuff. Cause like if you use Fargate, you don't have to manage the environment where those containers live. You just feed it container images and you tell it how many you want, which is nice. And then in AWS land, you'd have EKS or GKE and Google land for Kubernetes, which would be, I guess, to keep it really simple, like you're still feeding it container images, but obviously there's other knobs and stuff around that. So I think those would probably cover the main kind of ways to to run stuff in the cloud or main places you could run stuff, I guess I should say. To make sure I understood everything correctly. So first you can just use VMs if you really want to go down that route, but probably then the question is why would you want to move to the cloud in the first place? Then in Amazon, it would be EC2 instances, right? Second option, let's go from the, the most control to the less control. I would put something like, as you mentioned, GKE or EKS, where you, you get the Kubernetes cluster, right? Where you have to manage that cluster yourself. And on Kubernetes cluster, you obviously can deploy your container work workloads. 
but you have to manage majority of it yourself. Uh, there are some pieces, like some differences where on Amazon, on EKS, you don't have to manage a thing master node or something like this. Don't remember exactly. So this is your second option. You still have quite a lot of control. Now, if you choose that option, you can choose to run that on underlying EC2 instances that you reserve, or you can use Fargate, which is kind of like, just give me a cluster. I don't want to care about the underlying virtual machines. Do I understand that correctly, Carl? Is it this what Fargate yeah. allows you to do? Yeah, so if you do ECS, you have Fargate or EC2 flavors, and I've only ever used Fargate, <laughs> so so I don't, I guess, know entirely exactly on the EC2 side, but I guess basically you would have to manage at least some amount of the EC2 like hosts that the containers would run on if you're using ECS in EC2 mode. Whereas, yeah, like you said, with Fargate, you just, here's containers, make them happen somewhere Amazon, and, and they just do that. There's just magic. Yeah. So I was covering EKS, as you mentioned, is ECS is where you don't really have Kubernetes cluster where you just say, okay, here's a container of my application and I want you to run it. Here are some parameters, here are some environmental variables, config files, whatever, just, just run it. And then it may run on infrastructure managed by yourself where you reserve your own EC2 instances or you can use Fargate where you just say, I want this to run, just make it happen. And obviously you would pay a little bit more for that kind of service. And then I guess the one option, which is at the bottom in terms of the level of control you get is some kind of serverless option, right? Where you provide really pieces of code, which do something based on some kind of triggers, if that makes sense. So you can say, okay, if you have an API request, you will have HTTP request on this kind of URL, invoke this particular function, right? Serverless function which would be a piece of code in specified language and language runtime. So it could be like Python 3.8, it could be Node.js 15 or whatever. So it will run that piece of code. Now, Carl, have you seen Google Cloud Run, by the way? Yeah, but I've never never used it. I've been living in AWS the last year or so. And before, when I was in Google Land, it was all GKE stuff, so we didn't do any of that. I don't have any, any smart words on that. Yeah, so I actually use Google Cloud Run, and it's very nice if... I think it's honestly the easiest way to start with the cloud today. And I wish we had the same service in Amazon because the closest alternative is Lambda in Amazon, but it, it's not really the same. So what Google Cloud Run allows you to do is you build a container with your application. So instead of providing just a piece of code, I don't know, making an archive from it, you just build a container the same way you would build a container for ECS, for example. You just give it to Google, you specify what kind of API endpoint you want to service at, and it will just run your container well on demand in serverless manner where you don't really see any kind of infrastructure. You just run your code in the container. It's just nice. It's nice that you can transfer your existing container to that. And the biggest benefit of doing all of that is that not only you don't have to care about infrastructure, is that it scales really well and you don't have to pay a lot of money for it. You really pay for what you consume, right? So any kind of serverless offering, you pay for the, the duration of the request. So if you don't have a lot of concurrent users, that option will be very cheap. So folks, if you have never seen, let's say Google Cloud Run, 
that's probably the, the place I would recommend start your cloud journey. If you want to deploy just some kind of application in the cloud, yeah, it's nice. Uh, Dimitri, is it, yep. uh, do you use Google Cloud for uh, like container registry as well? You don't have to. You can, but you don't have to. So I didn't use when I was testing Google Cloud Run, I didn't use uh, Google Container Registry for that. Okay, because I was thinking most of the time when uh, the, my, the company I work for deploys um, on-prem solution, we ask the customer to allow Google Cloud Registry container registry through their firewalls. So if I deploy my container there, I was thinking I could use the same uh, registry and not having to rely on opening an internet connection from some uh, more sensitive part of the network. Yes, that's definitely an option, especially if you don't have your own registry. And usually you have some kind of benefits of hosting it in the same place. For example, I know that in Amazon, when you deploy a new version of container image to the registry, some services like ECS can recognize that. And if you set it up, you can auto deploy the new version on ECS without really you doing anything. So you might have some additional useful integrations like that. Thank you. Thank you for your question. There was another topic that was brought and I think it might be helpful that we have some kind of clarification for the audience on the message queues. I think that could be, could be useful. And it's, I think, quite relevant to network automation when you build any kind of controller, you would probably will need to think about how do I run my actual work, my actual, let's say, commands, software upgrades, anything like that, especially if it's long running stuff, how do I run it in a way where my web application can deal with that? There are two typical models on how you do interaction between different components, right? So there is request response model, which is kind of synchronous, even though you might have a synchronous request response, but still an idea there is that, let's say you as a user press some button or something like that on the front end. And then that request goes to your backend and then that backend sees, oh, okay, this was to do a software upgrade, which is a really long running task. So I will go and run that software upgrade directly from that web worker serving the request. So the problem is that is you are now blocking your web worker because you're waiting for that response from the network device to go back, that software grade was successful to send it to the user. So, well, depending how your front end is built, not only you might block on your front end where like user press something and he doesn't see anything because this request is being processed by your web worker. But on top of that, which kind of like results in this poor user experience where you don't have any kind of confirmation, but on top of that, you might also block your web worker from accepting other new requests coming in. So making your application not very scalable. Some pieces of it can be solved by using some kind of asynchronous framework. Like in Python, if you use fast API sync IO, so some of these pieces can be solved, but still that problem kind of exists. Alternative to that is to some kind of message queue where the idea is that, okay, if I have some kind of work, I will submit it to the queue, which will be done by some other worker. But when I submit it, I, I receive some kind of task ID or some kind of message ID, which I can return to user immediately without blocking anything. And then I could 
query later on the status of this message or the status of this task. So Carl, do you have any additional thoughts on that or something from your experience on using message queues? Not particularly. I mean, I think like in my experience, I've kind of worked with Rabbit to do the message queue job, obviously, and put jobs in the queue and then workers kind of pick them up. And then I think like the same as Veprim said earlier, worker finishes a job and they they stick an entry in a database that said it was complete or it failed or, or whatever. And then kind of more recently, I've done some kind of stuff with API Gateway and Lambda where you basically get a UUID for, for the job that was submitted, and then you can go back and there's a, another fetch endpoint that you can go and fetch it later for, again, long running things like you mentioned, like a like an upgrade or a show tech or you know some kind of junk like that. I don't know that I have any anything else to really add other than those are kind of the two patterns that I've used sort of recently and you know they've worked out reasonably well but I'm sure there's probably a lot of kind of better ways to do it but probably all depends a little bit on kind of what your apps look like and maybe front end can wait maybe that's okay in your environment I don't I don't know. Webrim, do you have anything to add? Yeah, it's uh, similar to what Carl said and uh, when it comes to workers basically you can choose if you want something quicker like a response quicker you might uh, use let's say something like Redis as a backend in in memory and just the money just get the results from there rather than having to go through the database if you're if you're aiming for more speed. Yep, thank you. Yeah, but folks, if you are building any kind of network automation controller, you would definitely need to think about that because the nature of things that we are doing is we are interacting with network devices and generally speaking, the response that we get is quite slow. So especially if you don't use anything like Python async IO or stuff like that, then you probably want to think about these systems rather sooner than later. One additional thing that you might want to look at would be salary, even though I had very mixed experiences salary. Not a fan. If you, I mean, my, my opinion is if you're living in async IO land, there's no reason to use salary. It was cool. It was, I mean, it's, it is cool. It's, it's pretty powerful, but if you have async IO, it feels like you're just adding extra layers for no, no real benefit. Oh, if you're using async IO, it definitely makes zero sense. There is no even async IO support in salaries today. So that I was thinking more about if you don't well, yeah, do async like IO. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't, well, I mean, I don't write anything, not async IO anymore, but <laughs> probably that's mostly your fault, but, um, yeah, async IO obviously kind of completely eliminates the need for, for salary, but even with something sync, I would rather like use Redis as a, like a pub sub or a cache or update Redis with like job state instead of use salary. Cause it's, it's just my experience with it has not been particularly great. <laughs> yeah. I've heard as well that it's got some issues, especially if for some particular task that might run longer than uh, than expected and it could crash. So recovering from it might be a little bit where you would hit problems. And uh, but the, the only well, the use case which I would prefer to use salary is if you're thinking of scaling. For example, let's say uh, I've got hundred requests and I'm okay for for now having a salary worker doing that. But if I want to, to have more workers and do that quicker, then in, in things like Docker Swarm, you can just say, let me have 10 replicas of that. So they all monitor the queue and they all get the, the work and you get more concurrence than that. And plus, whenever something goes wrong, uh, Docker Swarm does that orchestration uh, for you and within the worker that has failed. So that's just one use case, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Let's move to, I think, a little bit 
less nerdy topic that I had in mind. There was this article that was written by Business Insider. I will just read the title of it. Google's push to bring employees back to office in September is frustrating some employees who say they will quit if they can't be remote forever. So generally, I, I don't necessarily want to spend too much time focusing on Google specifically, though it is interesting to see that some high-skilled workers really don't, don't want to come back to the office and actually say that they might quit if they will be continue to be pushed. What do you folks think on generally remote work and remote work for people who do network automation? Do you think it's reasonable? Like, how does it fit the whole industry right now? Carl? I think remote only works, but I don't think a mix is really good, generally speaking. I feel like that type of thing is harder. But if it's like a remote first, remote only type of team, then I think that generally works okay. But my experience in the last couple of years has been that like massive time zone differences just cause weirdness. So I don't know, maybe that's a personal thing, but I'm all I'm all for remote. I'd prefer remote, um, but I would prefer to have like reasonable time zone differences because like, you know, I know you stay up late like for your time zone and so it's like if i text you at five my time or whatever you're probably up but like it's it just seems weird in a work capacity to be like oh well it's 10 o'clock somebody in europe i should be bugging right now i like even if they're good with that and that's like their work schedule or whatever it just feels weird and wrong to me and and i don't know it's just the big time zone difference thing is is just like a i don't know mental blocker for me that i that i don't enjoy but i'm definitely pro remote work and like i would definitely rather work remote i just think it has to be in the right organization or the right kind of setup and that's sort of harder to, to get right hopefully that makes sense yep it does Bepram. yeah i'm personally i'm home-based as well so all the time remote and uh, i usually just pop up for in the office every month once mainly for free beer and uh, just to meet other people there as well Free beer is an excellent reason to go to an office. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and apparently if I try different floors, it's different beers. So, you know. It's good. You get some variety. I dig it. Exactly. Yeah. So I've been working remote for the last three or four years. And I definitely would not go back to the office. Even though, you know, I would occasionally go to the office to just chat with some folks when it was possible before lockdown and stuff like that. But... Yeah, I don't see myself returning to the office and I really hope this situation in general will change in the industry and more employers will start accepting and start looking for remote only candidates. And I think for especially people who are doing network automation, I think a lot of it kind of makes sense. First, if you're doing that kind of work, you probably don't have to touch equipment physically anyway. So like you don't really have to go and check cables or I don't know, check the console connection or something like that. So that piece probably covered. The next thing is very often we do this network automation projects in very small teams, mainly because the industry still doesn't understand how all of that is supposed to work. All of these efforts, at least from what I have seen and with customers that I've talked to, the, like, the majority of effort is led by one, two, three people and in that scenario, I really see no reason why they would want to force office if those people are capable to doing remote-only work. But I do agree with you, Carl, that the communication piece, we as an industry still haven't figured out how to do proper async 
based communication, if that makes sense. I've heard stories that for some companies that moved to remote during the pandemic, their first kind of reaction was, oh, okay, let's just schedule meetings for that, that, and that. The same way you would schedule meetings for being in the office. And that really doesn't work that well in the remote. So like you need to have discipline and you have to understand how communication should work. So like, okay, if you're sending someone a message, you'll probably have to put some thought into it of like what exactly you're asking because a person might respond in different time, different time zone really. So you really want that communication. If you want that communication to be fruitful, you have to kind of revelate the way you interact with people at work. Do you agree, Carl? Yeah, and I think like setting a prop proper expectations. I mean, like that's kind of that'll be my my meta message for for today <laughs> to end on. Setting expectations is always important. But it's like if you if you message somebody at 5 p.m. my time and it's you know whatever that is 1 a.m. or something in in Europe and you expect a response like that's some bullshit, <laughs> you know. And like so, setting proper expectations I think can can really help make that communication easier but i i definitely think it's hard just in general but if you can do it obviously it's cool but that's why i say like within a smaller range of time zones make 100% remote smaller range of time zones is pretty easy to get right i think in my experience at least on one of my previous positions i was working in a team where we had all time zones in the team we had some people in India, we had some people in Europe, we had some people in state in United States, in UK, all all over the world. It was pretty interesting. I think I think I learned a lot how to communicate in such an environment. So Carl, I think it's doable. Though I am definitely a very bad example for this because I I might respond in unreasonable time when I probably shouldn't. But to be honest, I think all of this can be worked out if people really want to. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it can. I think it's just like you need well-defined expectations. And I think if you have that, then I think it can totally, totally be done. Yeah. Vepring? Yeah, same. I mean, I'm more like you, I would say. Uh, my boss is US-based. So, you know, my time zone with him and I'm in, in the UK, the time zones we have different. And then I've got some of the team in India as well. So there's a further uh, difference on the time zone with them. But uh, I, I guess it's just establishing the expectations. And in my case, it's best effort whenever you email me in something. Yeah, I agree with all of you folks. All right, any closing thoughts? Veprim, let's start with you. This has been very, very good. And uh, it's for the first time I joined and I'm really loving this. Uh, and also I have one message uh, for the community here. If you guys want to learn Nornir, uh, Carl is one of the best instructors I've seen. I've, I've done his courses with Kirk and they've been absolutely fantastic. And also um, a question more for you, Dimitri. Are you planning on publishing some uh, screenshots of your network anytime soon? Some screenshots? Yeah, some screenshots on, on how it looks because I, I checked the GitHub and it, it's got the text and it's great. I just want to see how it, it's looking on the UI. Yeah, maybe, maybe that, that would be helpful. Yeah, putting me on the spot here, I see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the intention, trust me. <laughs> thank you so much, guys. And thank yeah. you, everyone else as well. Thank you, Webrim. Carl, your closing so thoughts? I, I already got it. it was my, my meta message of the week was properly set expectations are key. 
that's that <laughs> that's all i got that's that's the closing thought i cannot agree more with you on that setting proper expectations is definitely uh definitely helpful and i i really don't have anything uh, anything smart to say at the closing of this so i will just close this out so this has been another episode of network automation hangout this is weekly audio discussion about network automation with the community we are recording every Thursday at 6 p.m. Central European time, 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the platform dodgehouse.tv. So join us to talk about network automation. We would love to have you here. Thank you so much and until next week. Goodbye.